Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street, London in the United Kingdom. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Joel McKeer. And we're going to be discussing his new book, A Culture of Growth, The Origins of the Modern Economy, published by Princeton University Press. Joel McKeer is the Robert H. Strotz Professor of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Economics and History at Northwestern University and Sackler Professor at the Etienne Burgler School of Economics at the University of Tel Aviv. His many books include The Enlightened Economy and The Gifts of Athena. He is the recipient of the Heineken Prize for History and the International Balzan Prize for Economic History. So welcome, uh, Joel. Um, your book is tackling several important questions. One key question is why the Industrial Revolution occurs at a particular moment in history in a particular part of the world. And one of the reasons it seems to me this is a very important question, not just a, an issue of, of just history, but very relevant to the modern world, is we live in a world where some parts of the world are very developed and others are not so developed or not at all developed. And there's a key question, which is, why is that? Why is it some parts of the world just seem to fail to develop while others do? And in a way, your book is trying to tackle that question by looking back historically at the moment where it happens in the West. Um, would you agree that, that it's an important question in terms of uh, the, the modern world? Well, it, <clears throat> it's so important that a very famous economist, uh, Robert Lucas, once said that once you start thinking about that question, it's very difficult to think of anything else uh, because it is the central question of our economic existence. Um, much of the world... Uh, also, as you say, not all the world, is today vastly richer than um, at any point in history. I would say that the people who are at the bottom of the, of the ladder today, so people who are relatively poor living in Western Europe or even the United States, are enjoying a living standard that is much higher in almost every dimension than the popes and the emperors of the past. I mean, we are living longer, you know, we are enjoying lower infant mortality, we are taller, we are stronger, we are healthier, we eat better, uh, we enjoy ourselves better, we have more access to information. All of this has emerged in the last 200 or 250 years as the result of a set of developments that began with the Industrial Revolution. And so what I tell my students is I compare modern economic history with the history of evolution. And I tell them, look, you know, for millions and millions and millions of years, species came and species went, and, you know, and the world really remained more or less as it was. And then one day, fairly recently, Homo sapiens comes around and changes the rules of the game. And from then on, everything is different. And um, the other sort of analogy, somewhat more prosaic, is to compare economic history to a hockey stick. You know, that it's, you know, it's, a, it's got a very long shaft in which essentially very little growth, and all of a sudden it bends upward uh, very sharply and stays uh, at that trajectory because I think what, as far as growth is concerned, we haven't seen nothing yet. Now, there you, you're quite correct in saying that, of course, this is not shared equally among uh, different nations in this world. But it's worth pointing out that even the poorest countries today, um, you know, poor countries in, in, say, 
uh, Africa or, or, or Central America, uh, even in these poor countries, even so they are vastly poorer than they are people are in Europe, the living standards have improved. Uh, you can think of, of you know, economic progress as some kind of an epidemic, if you want, some kind of an infectious disease. You know, the Europe is the first one that's infected, and then slowly other countries sort of catch the bug. Um, some of them earlier, some of them later. Japan was on, was there fairly early. You know, China and the four tigers in Asia a little bit later. And some places in Africa seem to be more or less immune to this disease. But eventually, I think they will all catch it. And of course, it's not really a disease. It's, it's a good thing. It's, a, it's an improvement in the human condition. But I think eventually the entire world uh, will live at a standard of living um, that is uh, vastly higher than what mankind ever experienced. And I think once you start thinking about that, Raj, it is very hard to think of anything else. I thought the other point you're making in the book is that it's not just a really interesting question as to why uh, this industrial revolution, which transforms the world, happens at a particular moment in history and in a particular geographic location. But the fact that once it starts going, it doesn't stop. I think one of the points you're making in the book is that if you look through the whole of human history, some civilizations progress for a bit, then they seem to stop and then go through long periods of time when nothing much seems to happen, or often they go backwards even. The notion that something begins at a particular moment in history and keeps going, you're raising, I think, a, a key question, which is what's happening there? Because that's unusual as well. I think okay. it's absolutely correct. And I will tell you what, my answer is, and I don't think you'll find a lot of people who, in my profession who will disagree with it. Uh, in the past, you do, as you state correctly, you see periods in which economic growth does occur. For instance, living standard in the Roman Empire, at its peak, you know, we're pretty decent, at least for a considerable uh, uh, part of the population. But then, as we all know, the Roman Empire declined and fell, and we go into a period in which living standards decline precipitously. The same can be seen happening in China, in India, in the Middle East, and on and on and on. So what's different about Europe after 1750? And my answer is, in Europe after 1750, growth is driven by knowledge. It's driven by a combination of science and technology, which I call Useful knowledge, also that term is a little bit confusing because you know, not all of it is, is actually useful, but it's a term that people used in the 18th century, and I like to use that. But basically, it is consists of progress in science and progress in technology reinforcing one another. On the one hand, you know, better understanding of natural regularity allows you to design better machinery, but at the same time, technology gives you tools and instruments to investigate nature that make you understand nature better. And so these start working uh, together, sort of hand in hand or chick by jowl, if you want. And that, I think, is a becomes an autocatalytic process that by now has become unstoppable. But I thought the other interesting point you're making in the book is that if we try to examine, as you do, rigorously and... and um, uh, very scholastically, the essential ingredients that start this industrial revolution off, you unpack the fact that several factors are in play and they interact with each other. And the reason why this is an important point is in the modern world, 
oftentimes we try to help development along. We try to intervene in societies. Or, for example, in the infamous case, let's say, of the Iraq war recently, we think we can intervene and induce progress. But because we don't understand it's actually a fragile and complex business, we think it's simple. And the point I think you're making in the book is actually there are a lot of factors involved. We mess it up quite a lot of the time. Again, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Well, the question is, who are the we in this particular case? I mean, if you think of we as being government and policies, um, I think on the whole, you're probably right. Although there are different cases in different countries. And what we are seeing, what is happening in Europe is clearly not the result of anybody designing or planning this, but that's what we call an emergent property. You know, it is the result of interactions between individuals and it was entirely unplanned and entirely sort of unexpected, I should say. Um, and it just happens uh, because a whole bunch of factors uh, come together and create the kind of environment in which this kind of uh, property could emerge. But one of the lessons of this book, I think, and I make this point repeatedly, is there is nothing inevitable or ineluctable about this. I mean, we were just lucky. And if a few things had gone the wrong way, we might still be living at uh, the same living standards that were experienced by uh, people in the early 18th century, which is, you know, which is not dreadful, but clearly it's a very long shot from what we experienced today. Okay, so now let's unpack your argument about why it happens in a particular place and at a particular moment. Uh, before that, you mentioned the period between 1500 and 1700 um, as extremely important. You see developments occurring there in terms of science. And in particular, two figures, Bacon and Newton, you believe are also important. Could you say something about those ingredients? Yes. So basically, the the argument I'm making in the book, of course, that when the Industrial Revolution begins in Britain, and most scholars would date it somewhere in the middle of the 18th century or so, you could argue about the date. Uh, and so what, what I'm arguing basically is that when that, by, by the time you reach 1750, the conditions are in place. So, and so to speak, you think of this as something, as some plants sprouting, okay? The land has been prepared, it's been plowed, it's been fertilized, the seed has been put inside, and then all of a sudden in 1750, this plant comes up and we say, wow. But in fact, what matters, of course, is the preparatory work. Now, the preparatory work, I think, occurs in Europe beginning with the Renaissance late in the 15th century at, at some point, and then keeps growing over the sort of next two or three centuries, creating what I think is what the essential precondition is for this economic growth. And that is an, uh, an intellectual community of people who dedicate themselves to understand natural forces, natural regularities, natural phenomena. And so in that movement, um, these two men that you've mentioned, uh, both of them happen to be English, but that's pure coincidence, uh, Francis Bacon and, and Isaac Newton. I could as well picked two continentals like, say, René Descartes and Leibniz or, you know, people like that. But what you see is a bunch of gigantic minds emerge who make it their calling to understand nature better and to understand 
what's going around us. Now, you know, that this sounds sort of almost banal to us. Of course, you want to understand nature. You want to understand chemistry and physics and biology and botany and, and, and zoology and so on, so you can raise better animals and make better food and navigate your way in the oceans. But in, I would say in, in, in 1500, that was far from obvious. The people who investigated nature were still mostly influenced by Greek and, and, and Roman learning, for whom the study of nature was a calling in and of itself, and who weren't particularly interested in, in applying their knowledge. And the greatness of Francis Bacon, as I see it, and as every Bacon student in the world sees it, is his insight that actually uh, in science, he didn't use the word, but he used natural philosophy, but it comes out of the same thing, had a purpose. And the purpose was improving the material condition of the human race. And so, you know, the, 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 the odd thing about Bacon was, of course, that he himself was a fairly mediocre scientist. He was a philosopher and a politician. Um, was dead, jolly good at both of them, by the way. But he was not a scientist. And what it took was a bunch of people who were better at math and physics uh, than in astronomy than he was to actually show that not only that we should do this, but we really can understand the universe. And of those, clearly Newton was the greatest. And so I would summarize it as saying, Bacon told us what we should do, and Newton told us what we can do. And after Newton dies, um, I think there is a general agreement that nothing is beyond us. We can understand everything, and once we understand it, we can use it in any way we see fit. Now, that turned out <laughs> to be a very optimistic view, because, in fact, they couldn't. You know, most of the things that they wanted to do, they couldn't do, because they didn't know enough, and because their tools and instruments weren't strong enough. So many of the things that they discovered, they discovered uh, almost serendipitously, no, by, 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 by luck, by accident, uh, and the science underlying much of the technology emerged very slowly and very, I say, spottily. But people didn't lose their belief. The belief caught on, which is we can make material life on this planet better. Progress is possible. The great idea that wins out between 1500 and 1750 is the idea of progress. And it's not just that progress is possible. First, you have to convince people that progress is desirable. But there's a whole bunch of people at that time who say, oh, no, 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 God wants us to live like this, you know, and we can't really tamper with creation too much. Some people still like it today, uh, talk in that way. But, they, but I think much of the thinking in the 17th and 18th century is, no, progress is good. We want to raise people's living standards, and the way to do it is by understanding nature. And then in the 18th century, what these same people do is basically they write down a, a program of how to bring this about. And um, they carry it out. And so <laughs> the result is basically the Industrial Revolution. Um, people basically say, let's study nature, let's study physics, let's study... Uh, well, chemistry comes, of course, right in that period in France, not in England, but more and more people start understanding how and why things work and how to make them better. And that's, you know, that's something that no civilization 
really ever did. The Chinese, you know, and people, you know, people have studied Chinese science and technology now ever since the beginning of Joseph Needham's uh, classic work. And clearly the Chinese were, you know, had, had fabulous minds, but this is something they didn't do. They never connected the sphere of the scientist and the theoretician with the sphere of the artisan. Things, or as, as they called it in Europe, the, the savant, they were the people who knew things, and the fabricant, the people who made things. And that's what comes together in Europe at that time. People who make things start talking to people who know things and vice versa. And of course, that's the way the world is now, 100%. I mean, everybody who's making anything tries to rely on best practice science. It goes without saying. But this is not something that, that, that the human race has really experienced until that time. And that's, I think, the main message of my book. But I also thought you were making the point that this is an important moment in history. Bacon and Newton are important figures in this and this period of time because it's particularly Bacon argues that we're going to discover new things. Knowledge is about the notion of discovering new things. And we're going to put aside the ancient Greek teachings. We're not going to say that knowledge is something that has already been handed down to us, that we have to go back and, and just memorize or learn the old stuff. Um, in other words, knowledge becomes a voyage of discovery into new stuff, whereas before learning had been the idea that you learned the old stuff and you just repeated it because it was all handed down from the ancient Greeks. Any, any reaction to that? Now, so that's a main message of the book. One of the things that changes in Europe in this period between 1500 and 1750 is that people lose this paralyzing respect for what they called at the time the ancient, you know, that's classical civilizations, classical knowledge, classical science, classical literature. Basically, they admired that, you know, the achievements of these great Greek and Roman writers, you know, Aristotle and Cicero and, you know, Plato and Archimedes and Galen and all these people, you know, we, we can never be that good. So if you want to study medicine, you study the writings of this, this second century Roman doctor called Galen, who basically summarized everything that was known at the time. And, uh, you know, other civilizations outside Europe still suffered from this paralyzing uh, uh, admiration for earlier uh, knowledge. Just, it was true for Muslim civilization, it was true for Jewish civilization, it was true to a large extent for the Chinese. And what you see happening in Europe is this amazing loss of respect uh, for the learning of the ancients, in which people, you know, and Bacon was one of the worst, but by far not the only one, you know, by far from being the only one. Lots of people uh, wrote like that. They basically say, you know, Aristotle was a very smart guy, but we can do better. And, you know, and, and, and you know, somebody like William Gilbert, you know, when he writes the Magneta, basically says, these Greeks didn't know anything. It's, that's too strong, but that's the attitude that people take. And what happens in the particular in the 17th century is this sort of struggle between the ancients and the moderns. And the moderns basically saying, we can do better than these classical writers in every dimension. You know, we've got Shakespeare and he's better than Aristophanes. Now, I think that's a silly comparison. How can you ever compare Shakespeare with Aristophanes? But surely you can say... Yet Newton knew more than Aristotle about how you know, physics works, simply because Newton knew what Aristotle knew, but not the other way around. And this is something that everybody realizes. So by 1700, 
that battle in Europe is over. Basically, people still study the, the classical writings, but not for the purpose of understanding astronomy, chemistry. Uh, and so I remember, you know, the Copernican Revolution overthrew a huge uh, uh, amount of astronomical knowledge based on the writings of, 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 of a bunch of Hellenistic astronomers, um, which people had believed for many centuries. And it turned out it was wrong. It, I mean, they could prove it was wrong. And people start finding statements in Aristotle uh, that uh, are just mistaken. For instance, I'll give you one other example of, 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 of this happening. Aristotle postulated that nature abhors a vacuum. You cannot create a vacuum because then, you know, that, that was not possible. Well, the Europeans basically questioned that, that, that statement and they created something called uh, a vacuum pump. Uh, you know, the great English scientist Robert Boyle built a, built a, a great one. And they said, look, I mean, we're making a vacuum. I mean, Aristotle just isn't, isn't right. Vacuum is possible. Now, that has huge implications because, of course, you can't really build an atmospheric engine unless you understand that a vacuum is possible. So this has vast implications. But in astronomy, in physics, I mean, you know, another example, spontaneous generation. You know, can life emerge uh, from things that are not living. And Aristotle said, yes, of course they can. And then a bunch of Italian uh, 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 biologists in the 17th century said, no, no, spontaneous generation doesn't occur. You know, every life comes forth out of other life. You know, think about that. That's, that's a huge discovery. And basically, you're overthrowing a vast body of knowledge that was just wrong. And I think that's what, uh, that's what Europeans do throughout this period. Now, this is not self-evident. And the truth is that a lot of bodies fought against this tooth and nail. And it could easily have gone the, the other way. In a way, I argue in the last chapters of the book that that's what happens in China. In China, you also have people who want to uh, innovate, but the ruling incumbency, the people who are in power right now, they fight this, and they basically suppress it until the Chinese regime is is overthrown in the 20th century. But um, but in Europe that doesn't happen. In Europe, the 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 moderns win the battle. Uh, I wouldn't say easily, but decisively. And by 1700, certainly after the appearance of Newton's Principia, this battle is over. You know, this is this is gone. You know, very, nobody says you want to study physics. You know, go read uh, Archimedes. I thought the other point you're making, because um, I think it's a very interesting analysis about paralyzing influences, what paralyzes a society and stops it move, moving forward. Um, but I thought the other point you were making in the book, this, what is very interesting about Europe at this moment is because you've got lots of these countries next to each other, any attempt to suppress an intellectual fails because the intellectual just crosses the border and go, goes to another neighboring country and continues to print out using the printing press or disseminate their ideas. So I thought the other thing you were saying is there's something interesting about this group of countries that are together that allows fleeing or freedom of intellectuals. When you try to suppress, any king who wants to suppress someone has, has a bit of a problem because people just flee across the border and, and keep disseminating their ideas. And that's also an important difference between this geographical location and, and the rest of the world. 
That's absolutely true. And, you know, they, it doesn't even necessarily require people fleeing, although a lot of that happened. But, you know, you think about uh, the so-called index. The index was a list of prohibited books that couldn't be printed uh, because they were heretical and uh, apostatic in some way, and blasphemous, don't ask. You know, these, these words are being used if you want to suppress innovation. And so... Guys like Galileo say, I mean, he's told he can't publish his books anymore. So somebody smuggles the manuscript out. They get printed in, in Strasbourg. They get printed in, in, in Amsterdam. They can print it elsewhere. And then eventually they find their way back into Italy. So this, this doesn't work. You cannot suppress books because they will just be printed across the boundary. Uh, the same is, of course, for people. If you try to chase people around because you don't like their beliefs, they will, as you say, pack up their suitcases and go elsewhere. Now, you know, this is not a minor thing. You couldn't, uh, you know, fly, uh, you know, on Ryanair from one place to another. So going from one place to another was expensive and unpleasant and, and uh, uh, you know, dangerous maybe in some cases. But people did all the time. And, it, you know, Newton here is sort of a bad example because he actually never left the line between Cambridge and London. But a lot of these French and, and English intellectuals uh, um, did this. I mean, we should never forget that uh, Hobbes' Leviathan was written in Paris because Lo Hobbes was persona non grata and, and, and Locke wrote the essays on toleration in, in, in Netherlands. People moved about when they felt that they could not express themselves. And eventually what happens is, and this is what any economist will tell you, is that people figure this out and they say, look, we cannot suppress this. And so there's no point in trying. And so what the 18th century does is basically most European governments, not all, but most European governments take the attitude of we can't, if you can't beat them, join them. And so they let these intellectual uh, disputes and, 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 and arguments go on and um, and progress, progress occurs inevitably. Now, some countries don't want to play that game, like Spain. Well, so we know that Spain basically doesn't partake in this movement toward progress. Um, Russia is a more complicated case, which I, I, I will bore you with. But, but, but you know, we know where the places where where toleration and and competition in this market for ideas uh, reached a very high level. That's the Netherlands. It's, 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 it's Great Britain, to some extent Northern Italy, Germany, and France. And that's, that's, that's where the Industrial Revolution starts. I mean, this cannot possibly be uh, a coincidence. I thought the other interesting point you're making in the book is although you um, are arguing there's something very important about knowledge, the culture of knowledge, the culture of science, it is not the case that we can explain the Industrial Revolution simply down to something that happens in universities. You emphasize no. the idea not of esoteric knowledge, but of practical or useful knowledge. And you give the example of James Watt and John Smeaton, who you describe as the best engineers of the age, but neither of them went to university. No, so no, could no. you say something about this distinction between um, the, the kind of you might get universities and more practical and useful knowledge, which is what actually drives the Industrial Revolution. Absolutely. And so the one of the insights, and this goes back <clears throat> all the way to Bacon, is that intellectual and theoreticians by themselves cannot pull this off. They need the cooperation of people who are highly skilled artisans, good with their hands, who can make things. Uh, and, you know, big, you know, you look at 
at what happens with Leonardo. You know, Leonardo was, a, in some ways, had fantastic ideas, wrote hundreds and hundreds of, of sketches of machinery, much of which could work, but there wasn't anybody who could make them. You know, the workmanship and the materials just were there. And um, this is full well realized by people in this, in this movement. And so um, they're actually trying to engage in this exchange of knowledge between theorists and, uh, and artists. And in fact, some of them, you know, like, like say Robert Hooke, people like that, were very good with making instruments themselves. But once you invent something like a steam engine, say, you need somebody who can make uh, cylinders at a very high level of precision, or else you don't, you're not going to get the pressure. And so what, where what was particularly lucky was that there were in England at that point ironmongers who could do that. And I think that, I think, makes all the difference in the world. So intellectuals in and of themselves are not going to pull it off. And that, of course, provides us with an answer of why does this really start in Britain and not, say, on the continent? And the answer is that the continent has as many smart theories, maybe more than, 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 than Britain does. You know, but certainly they had better mathematicians and, and, and much of chemistry is developed on the continent in France and then later in Germany. But what Britain has are practical people who can actually carry out and scale up these ideas. And that's what counts more than anything else uh, in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. And um, I think that collaboration between people who know things and people who, who make things, and that, uh, I think, conjunction of skills and understanding uh, is what gives, what makes Europe differently, and that's what changes history. Uh, that's, I think, the key to everything. One of the other keys uh, you point out, and one of the other things that's shared, is the notion of religion. And you seem to place um, great emphasis on Puritanism in Britain as as being key as well. Could you say something about that? This is, of course, was, is, is an, an old idea. It goes back all the way to Robert K. Merton, who was um, one of the greatest sociologist um, of the 20th century, when it's been compared to you know, what Ken Arrow was to economics in sociology. And Merton wrote his dissertation pointing this out and how many of these uh, early uh, English scientists were Puritans. I am... I have ambiguous feelings about the role of religion. And many people, so people divide into two camps about it. There are people who say, oh, the reason why Europe did so wonderful is because they were Christian. And, you know, Christianity has all kinds of characteristics that make it particularly conducive to progress. And uh, then there's people who say, no, 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 it's the other way around. Europe advanced when people abandoned religion or became more secular. I actually think subtle than that. Uh, but what you see happening in Europe is people are able to reconcile their religious uh, beliefs with uh, economic progress. And so in particularly, I think, uh, in Britain, but even in France, which remained Catholic, people basically sort of are able to uh, uh, convince themselves that God wants them to do what they're already what, what they're already doing, 
So God wants them to investigate nature. And this is actually what Puritanism was to some extent about. Merton points out that uh, uh, what these English Puritans convinced themselves of is, is, is God is so inscrutable and so hard to understand that the only way to come close to God is to understand how nature works. Clearly, that was what was driving Isaac Newton, who was an extremely religious man. But the historical irony is that in the 18th century, more and more Enlightenment figures, not all of them by any means, but more and more of them, uh, basically felt that you know religion was, was unimportant. There's a wonderful anecdote about the great French physicist uh, Laplace, who wrote this, you know, path-breaking book about the structure of the universe. And then uh, Napoleon, who had apparently read it, also who knows, but Napoleon asked him, but sir, where is the place of God in your understanding of the universe? And according to the story, which may or may not be apocryphal, Laplace said, sir, I have had no need for that hypothesis. And um, the truth of the matter is that European science and technology develops more or less outside the field of religion, and that religion plays a different role in different countries. In some, in many countries, it is used as a way to try to stop progress. You think about, for instance, uh, that the Catholic Church and the Jesuits did in the south, south part of Europe, where the Jesuits wouldn't allow teaching of, say, Copernicus, uh, Copernican uh, astronomy until very late in the 18th century. They resisted certain kinds of mathematics. You know, they, 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 they didn't like many ways in which progress was taking place. And so the Jesuits also, they play an, an interesting role um, because they also were very active in education, but they were basically a conservative force. Um, the same is true, I think, in the Netherlands with some of the more um, orthodox Calvinists also very conservative. But the best example I can give you about how religion gets in the way is what happened with the Jews. So Europe has, you know, not that many, but a considerable number of Jews. And the, the, the interesting thing about Jews is that they're educated. Men uh, in the Jewish community were almost without exception literate, which is far from true in, in any other community, certainly around, say, 1600. But in Jewish society... Um, there was a, there was a, it was the, basically an obligation of parents to make sure that their sons could read because the religious practice basically consists of reading uh, the Torah, and so the Jews were all literate. But if you look carefully, before eighteen hundred, in fact, the contribution of Jews to physics, to mathematics, to astronomy, to chemistry, to biology is essentially zero. They. They have very, very few contributions. And that is because their religion was basically conservative. Everything worth knowing was already revealed to our forefathers. It's all written in those books. If you want to be smart and wise and learned, you study those books. Now, at some point after 1800, the Jews changed their mind about that, and they climb on the bandwagon of secular civilization. And then, of course, there's no stopping them. But and but until 1800, Jewish religion is an obstacle to uh, research and progress among the Jewish community, which I find uh, an extremely interesting phenomenon because, of course, that's not what they are today. 
Now, one of the other things I think is very interesting about your book is that I believe, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you may run screaming from the room at this idea, that you're discussing forces because you're discussing a dynamism that gets unleashed. There's a dynamism that, that starts to happen, which keeps going and going and going, and, and therefore people are driven by forces. So there's a sense in which actually I think you're exploring almost a psychological theory as to what's going on with the Industrial Revolution, because these forces that drive people mean they keep going, not just an individual de dedicates their life years and years to, to these processes, um, but generations devote themselves to it. Any, any response to that idea? Well, I'm not 100% convinced that people are entirely driven by uh, this search for progress. Um, many of them obviously are driven by fairly selfish motives. You know, they want to make a mark on the community of scientists. Uh, they're looking for patronage jobs. They're looking for, if they're working in a university, they're looking for nice university chairs. But many of them eventually abandoned those university chairs and took jobs that paid better, like Galileo or Newton. Um, but they all wanted to establish themselves as leading scientists in their in their generation. It was what we call in economics a reputation game. People are trying to impress their peers because, you know, if... if that's how these patronage jobs are handed out. And so this is, a, in a way, a highly competitive uh, system. And, I, and it's for a good reason that I call it the market for ideas, because people are not just selling ideas, they're selling themselves because they obviously are judged by the quality of their original ideas, as is true, of course, today as well. And so it's that kind of competitive system that drives uh, progress just as much as people's beliefs that they wanted to make things better on this planet. But in a way, that's what economics tells you, right? I mean, they, they tell you, Adam Smith told us, you know, that it is not out of altruism that the baker provides his bread. He wants to make a living, but it works. That's what precisely emerging properties are. And my sense is that, that something like that is happening in Europe, even so the market for idea, of course, is not a real market, but people are still competing in it. And you know, Raj, it's still working today. I mean, the reason science is progressing is in large part because many people, whether they are in you know molecular biology or in anthropology, uh, uh, people want to impress others. They want to make a mark. If you are in a field like mine, of course, everybody wants is hoping for the Nobel Prize. But short of that, you know, there are other things that you can that you can get. You can get get knighted by the Queen, as one of my friends just has been. Uh, uh, so people are trying to, you know, do well for themselves, and in the process, make the condition of the human race better. There is, that's how economics really predicts society ought to work. And I think this is just another example of it. It's something that nobody at the time, you know, oddly enough, expected how, how far this would go. Well, we're running out of time a little bit. It's been lovely talking to you, uh, Joel. But I want to ask you another question, my final question, which is maybe, again, one that may lead you to run screaming from the room. Let us imagine a leader of a country is listening to this podcast, maybe the leader of a developed uh, country or maybe the leader of a country that is not developed. 
Um, what should they take away as the lessons from your book? If they were trying to learn the lessons of the Industrial Revolution starting in Britain and leading to a big, big edge that Britain had over the rest of the world for a while and certainly spread to the west of Western Europe. If you're running a country, what lessons do you take away from your book in terms of what should you be doing with your country if you have power and the ability to twiddle the main variables to ensure your country accelerates in terms of development and doesn't get stuck or doesn't stay underdeveloped? Well, there's a particular developed economy I have in mind now uh, that is run by a Mr. Trump. And if you want a set of good policies for how to make your country uh, go ahead, don't do what Trump is doing. And um, there are at least two things that uh, I think are particularly devastating. And you know, I never thought I would have to make these points until uh, the last year. And the first is uh, allow mobility of people. That the, that the ability of the best and the brightest to move about and go to the places where they can do the best for themselves, that is the, the lubricant that makes the international scientific community work. And what has been happening in the last year is that the American administration is in, very rapidly making that movement increasingly difficult. And that is one of the most stupid policies uh, that, that can happen. The other thing, and you can, it, it, it's ironic you should ask this question because there was just a editorial about this or an op-ed about this this morning in the New York Times, is that governments should respect what scientists tell them. Now, scientists are not omniscient and they make mistakes and they get things wrong. And sometimes they're just, you know, trying to... Uh, 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 you know, convince people of things that, that they're not sure of themselves. But by and large, I think uh, what we, we should do is listen to what scientists tell us. And um, because they, they you know, uh, they're better informed about their fields than the rest of us. And this administration in the U.S. is explicitly and, and quite deliberately turning anti-science. And they are denigrating environmental science. They are denigrating climate science. They are denigrating medical science. And they're putting in place uh, ignoramuses with political agendas. And that is the worst thing that you can do. Um, as far as the European uh, uh, um, societies are concerned, you know, they haven't, you know, thank God, not have to deal you know, with a lout like Trump, but um, there are, I think, uh, things in Europe, even in things in Europe, which I find questionable. Uh, one of the things that I have not never quite understood is the strong resistance that Europeans have to what is known as GMOs, genetically modified organisms, which essentially is the way science allows us to improve uh, plants and make uh, crops more friendly in a particular in a particular way that that, that that we desire now if these were really dangerous uh, as as is argued i would see their point but in fact there's not a smidgen of evidence that that is the case so you know that kind of resistance reminds me of the reactionary forces of the 17th and 18th century who tried to who tried to stop progress and uh, i can say that if they fail then they will fail today not because you can't stop progress in one country, but because if you are, if your policies are uh, 
regressive and um, backward looking enough, the best and the brightest will go elsewhere. And in fact, that is already happening in the United States, that we are getting the, the flow of foreign graduate students to American universities has sharply diminished. And um, that is precisely the kind of thing that shouldn't be happening. So what is it the famous quote is that those who don't learn from history are fated to make mistakes or repeat it? There's something. Yeah, it's, 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 it's uh, attributed to an American writer called Santayama. And it says, those who do not know their history are destined to repeat it. And um, I think that's that, that, that's, a, that's a silly remark. I mean, but... Uh, I'm always very, very cautious about what does history teach us, Raj. And I'll tell you exactly why. Because I think what the Industrial Revolution has done and what the modern, particularly in the modern age has done, it has changed every parameter that drives the dynamic of history. And so what was true in the 16th and 17th and 18th century may not be true today simply because we know so much more. Now, that may be the good news or maybe the bad news. Um, you know, we have much higher standards of living than ever expected, we all, but we also have the possibility to obliterate life on this planet uh, by, you know, a few uh, deranged people pushing their own buttons. And uh, that kind of danger didn't exist in the 17th century. So it's sort of the good news and the bad news. But what it tells you is that if you're you know, studying history because you think you can draw policy conclusions from it, is a dangerous business. And I think most, not even economic stories, are actually engaging in that. Now, you know, there are cases in which we think we know something, like on the whole, free trade is better than protection. But um, short of that, I think um, I would be very cautious. And I don't think I would be pretentious enough to think that I can provide politicians with good advice, you know, beyond what I've already said. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Joel Mukir. Um, it's been a delight talking to you. The book is called A Culture of Growth, The Origins of the Modern Economy, and it's published by Princeton University Press. Professor Mukir, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure.